All right, well, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. And this morning, we're going to be in verses 13 through 25. And as you're turning there, you probably will recognize this passage. It's a very famous passage. It's the one in which Jesus cleansed the temple. And don't worry, this will not be one of those uh, hellfire and brimstone kind of sermons. We see Jesus, of course, get angry with a righteous indignation. Uh, but there is really a, a great deep sense of joy and really zeal in his heart for his church here in this passage. So I want us to actually have that in mind as we approach the reading of God's word. <clears throat> now, uh, as we begin, uh, I want to share a quick story. You see, a while ago, a dear friend of mine, actually Brett Eubank from Rivermont Presbyterian Church up in Lynchburg, my hometown, he had asked me to watch his two-year-old golden retriever named Annabelle. This cute little puppy, you know, just two and a half years old or so now. And see, my dog named Baxter, who's a chocolate lab, about the same age, about a month apart, is best friends with this dog, Annabelle. And so I was asked to watch Annabelle for a few days and bring Baxter over, might as well, you know, have a little fun, have the two dogs run outside. And that's what they did. You know, the first three days of my friend's vacation, they were running around outside running back and forth, chasing balls, chasing sticks, chasing each other, left and right, left and right, outside, until the very final day right before my friend Brett and his wife and family returned from their vacation. See, the very last day right before Brett and Denise got back from their vacation, it was pouring down rain. The dogs had nowhere to go. They had just the indoors, the living room to play around in. And as some of you may know, just an hour north of here in Lynchburg, where I'm from, when it rains, it rains. <laughs> we call it Drenchburg a lot of times even, us locals, because of just how bad it gets. In fact, that happened even just a week ago. It was pouring down rain and everything got all muddy around us. And so, of course, as you can probably imagine, those two dogs were not you know, allowed to go outside much at all. They had to stay inside, but they were getting antsy and more and more and more as the day went on. And so finally I thought, you know what, what, what harm could happen? I'll let them outside for about a minute or two. The rain had paused for a moment, so I'll let them outside. Sure enough, they were out there for maybe one, two minutes tops. But when they came back in, they were absolutely soaked, caked with mud even from head to tail. And they bolted through the door, and immediately they were off, running circles in the living room of my friend's house, tracking in mud, jumping on Denise's, my friend's wife, her clean, white, pure snow-white couches. Oh, just getting mud all over the place. That mud had made its way from out in the backyard into my house. As you can imagine, needless to say, I separated those two dogs faster than you can even blink. <laughs> But the mud had already made its way into my friend's house, especially onto those couches. And so an hour later, and a good long bath later, both of those dogs were cleaned up. But then the real work began. See, I began to feverishly clean my friend's house to the best of my ability. But here in our text this morning of John chapter 2, we're not about to read of just a mere cleaning spree or the act of cleaning itself, really what we are about to see here in the gospel of John, the word of God given to us, is a far greater act of real deep cleansing beyond the surface. 
See, here we are about to see the very zeal of Jesus for God the Father's house. This zeal that would utterly consume him, and it would consume him to the point of physically removing those figurative dogs who had muddied up the worship of God's people. And so this passage, again, is more than just a mere cleaning spree. It goes much deeper. And it is especially relevant for men and women like you and myself even, because it proves to us that Jesus is indeed zealous for our purification. After all, we ourselves are not all that unlike those two retrievers drawn into the muddy mess of the world on a weekly basis, are we not? You may even feel a little muddy yourself right now, spiritually speaking, here in this place of worship, as you carry with you the baggage of your own shame and guilt and sin in your conscience, even here to this place of worship this morning. But friends, the gospel of Jesus tells us that he will not let you stay in that muddied, sinful estate. See, he loves you far too much to let you wallow outside in the muck and the mire of this world. It's in his goodness that he washes us thoroughly and lovingly brings us into his home to worship him. But why? Well, so that we might be and truly enjoy being purified and grace-filled in our fellowship with him and with one another. And so, friends, if you catch nothing else this morning, just the main point of the message, if you will, please catch this, that Jesus is zealous for your purification. That will be our main point for this morning. And we're about to see this zeal for our purification portrayed to us in our text in three separate ways. Namely, in how Jesus zealously cleansed the temple first, the church, and finally, how he is zealous to clean you, even as his own blood-bought individual. So with this idea fresh in our mind, let's go ahead and read now from the word of God in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, starting in verse 13. The Word of God says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? That he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they, catch this, believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them 
because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Friends, this is the living and the abiding word of God, forever faithful and true, and given to each one of us, God's people, in love. With this still fresh in our minds, let's now come before God in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that it was your zeal that brought you to the temple in the first place. Your zeal, Lord, that brings us to this place of worship, to the reading of your word, and now to the preaching of it. God, we are so thankful that we have this time to be uh, set apart in order to hear your word and truly delight in it once more. Father, we ask that as we approach the reading of your word and the, the preaching of it now in this time, that you, by your spirit, would speak even through me as your messenger. Speak, O oh Lord, through your word so that we might hear and believe as those disciples did 2,000 years ago. That we might know that you indeed are the one who came and died for us and was rose again, giving us new life. And so, Lord, we ask for your blessing upon this time as your word is opened before us and as your spirit does the work of pointing us toward Christ and him crucified. And so we ask this in your holy name, O Lord. Amen. Well, friends, again, our main point this morning is that Jesus is zealous for our purification. And again, we're about to see this primarily in how he zealously cleansed the temple, the church, and us as individuals. First, we'll see how he zealously cleansed the temple in verses 13 through 17, specifically here in our text. Again, our passage tells us this, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers doing what? Sitting now, unfortunately, we don't have time to unpack the fuller context of the Passover meal this morning. However, if it's ever a, ple a pleasure or a privilege of mine to come back, I would love to unpack that more in detail with you. But it's important for us to know here and now this morning that this Passover meal was indeed a gift from God's own hand given to his own people in love. This Passover meal was an Old Testament sacrament, as our Westminster Confession tells us, a sacrament that he had established all the way back in Exodus chapter 12 in order to represent Christ well in advance of his coming. But it also represented all of the benefits of Christ well in advance to his people. And so here in John chapter 2, we see the Passover as the occasion and the temple as the location of this week-long celebration that we're reading of here. See, believers during this time of the year were drawn to Jerusalem from across that known world to one place, God's holy place of worship, a place where not even a hint of false worship should ever be allowed. And so in John chapter 2, verse 13, we read right off the bat that Jesus went into the temple a lot of times those small words are actually some of the most important words. He went into the temple of his father. But why did Jesus, who is God the Son, God himself, have to go into the temple? Why him? Well, he did it for two primarily theological reasons. 
First, to perfectly obey the law of God on our behalf. And second, to lead us, his people, in our own worship. And so, in effect, Jesus was proving both his divinity, being fully God, and even the humanity which he took on, being fully man, right here in the incarnation. But when he entered the temple, what happened? Jesus immediately became furious, we read. Well, why did he become furious? What did he see? Well, friends, he saw the slippery slope of sloppy worship. He saw the love of money replacing the love of God. He saw evil men leeching off of those who had traveled far and wide to worship God rightly through sacrifice. But catch this, they were able to leech off of these men and women because the men and women didn't prepare long in advance their sacrifices as God had commanded them to do in the Old Testament. And so because they went away from God-honoring, God-fearing worship from the start, they were taken advantage of. And so the money changers took advantage of God's people's ignorance. See, the money changers didn't just set up shop outside of the temple walls. No, they actually dared to take the place of God's holy worship inside of the temple court. And to add insult to injury, they charged the people who had come from far and wide nearly four times the going rate of what those sacrifices actually should have cost. Talk about inflation, right? (laughs) We feel it now. They, They really felt it then. See, their worship, though, had become adulterated. And all for the cause of capital C, convenience. Their idol of comfort the worshipers fell prey to a den of robbers. Now these robbers had stolen the attention of the people away from a true heart of brokenness and contriteness before God and replaced it with a concern over just how many animals they could get in the moment with however much money they brought from wherever it was that they came from. So these robbers stole the significance of grace and replaced it with trying to earn God's favor in the moment and a focus on that. These robbers had stolen the joy of the people's own salvation and exchanged that joy for dry, ritualistic, duty-filled religion, paying God his dues, so to speak. And above all, these robbers sought to steal God's glory by replacing what had been set apart for holy use with noisy shops and stands and tables lined with coins from all around the known world at the time, all within the walls of God's house. And so Jesus rightly became furious over this debacle. See, our God, as we know, especially from the Old Testament, but here now in the very person of God the Son, Jesus Christ, is indeed a jealous God. And he refuses to share his glory with any other. Nor will he let his glory be stolen or, catch this, his people be abused and extorted without retribution and justice. And so Jesus threw down the figurative gauntlet before those men trying to rob the glory of God And he fashioned a whip of cords, as we read of here. He used every necessary force, in other words, to drive the workers of evil out from the holy place of God's worship. He poured out their coins. 
he overturned their tables. And he spoke clearly to all who heard, do not make my father's house a house of trade. But brothers and sisters, we are not all that unlike those people that were driven out in John 2, are we? See, we may not think of breaking God's commandments in terms of highway robbery, but every time that we choose our own personal comforts or our concerns, humanly speaking, or conveniences, as the people did here, over worshiping God wholeheartedly, we are indeed robbing God. And we also end up robbing, inadvertently, our own selves. We rob ourselves of experiencing his joy, his goodness, and his grace when we do not tend to the law of God and seek to hold it fast within our own hearts. And so, friends, we, each one of us, myself, we need our worship to be purified. Well, this brings us to point number two this morning. See, not only did Jesus zealously cleanse the the literal temple right there of those who sought to rob God of his glory, he essentially promised to cleanse the church in verses 18 through 22. And he did this, namely, through his atoning death upon the cross and resurrection. Uh, Look with me, if you will, at what the Jews had asked of him, starting here in verse 18. See, after he had kicked out the money changers, they said this to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, Jesus, won't you show us a symbol of your authority? Now, I may or may not be speaking from personal experience here, but if you have ever happened to be pulled over by a cop on the highway for going a little over the speed limit, what are they required to show you? Their badge, right? It's not just, uh, oh, you're Sheriff so-and-so, or, oh yeah, you're the state trooper. (laughs) Rather, this demonstrates the principle of authority, authority to take charge over something. And this is essentially what the Jews were asking of Jesus. Where is your badge? See, Joe Israelite was essentially saying something to the effect of, Jesus, what is the basis of your authority? Who made you boss? I mean, sure, we also want to worship God, but we couldn't have been the ones who drove out those money changers. So who gave you the right? Was it somebody here on earth like us? Were you just feeling fed up and feeling rebellious in the moment? Or were you acting on behalf of the Lord God Almighty in heaven himself? Friends, how did Jesus answer them? I love the way that he answered them here. See, he purposefully disguised his spiritual and magisterial authority in the most profound way. He prophesied. He said these words, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. There's a reason why they were provoked by these words. That They essentially retorted immediately, who do you think you are? It took us 46 years to rebuild this temple. See, sadly, the Jews there in the moment had missed the whole point of what Jesus was telling and even demonstrating before their own eyes. For as the scripture tells us explicitly, he was speaking of the temple of his own body that must be destroyed and then resurrected. For he himself is the glory of God in the flesh, the dwelling place of God with man, the lamb of God who is himself the true and the better temple. 
And so Jesus refused to allow this picture of himself prefigured there in this literal temple during the first century to become tainted with sin. This is why, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. But then I said, and these are the words of Jesus, well in advance from the Psalms, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. It is Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. See, Jesus didn't need to assume any degree of authority in driving these evil men out of the temple. It was already his. And my favorite hero of the faith, the late Presbyterian pastor, J. Gresson Machen, up in Philly, who started Westminster, where I'm working on my doctorate, he put it very well in saying this, that Jesus claimed the right to legislate for the kingdom of God. He didn't need to pretend. The kingdom was his. See, he is our true prophet, priest, and king, again, as our confession tells us. And he would prove his divine authority in both his unjust death and bodily resurrection from the grave. Friends, as true prophet, Jesus dictates God's truth to us. As true priest, he cleanses God's people, you and me. And as true king, he rules over us, God's people, with righteousness. But friends, in his mercy, he has gone to the most extreme of all measures to purify ordinary men and women like you and me, his church. See, just as the prophet Moses, way before Christ's coming to this earth, just as Moses was consumed with the worship of God upon returning from Mount Sinai, coming down with the tablets, right? The law, the Ten Commandments especially. As he was consumed with the worship of God and ended up tearing down the golden calf that the people of Israel had erected and then instating God's law for the good, the true everlasting good of God's people, Jesus, the true and the better prophet, does not want his church to ever become enslaved or captivated by even a hint of false worship. This is why, friends, we sing week in and week out, even as we have this morning, God's own thoughts back to his listening ears. We call it theology. We call it hymns. We call it the Psalter. It is why we are so careful not to conform the content of our worship to the passing fads or the whims of the culture around us, in our broad evangelical society even. It is why we, though, treasure the gospel of Christ and him crucified and never dare replace this message with ideologies of self-help or politically driven speeches or entertaining light shows as so many churches do nowadays with fog machines and the like. It is why, however, in the positive, that we lift up each other in fervent prayer, with earnestness for God to answer and for his glory to be made known in our midst. And it's why we openly confess our sins and our struggles before one another, because we live in the light of God's grace.
and the freedom that the gospel affords us. So friends, do you hunger for the word of God, the word of Christ here in this place, and the freedom that the gospel brings? Is Christ your first love? If so, yours will be, and it's a guarantee, it will be a spiritual life, a spiritual vitality that is to be spurred onward and upward all the way to glory land. Yours will be the pleasing aroma of Christ and a fragrant offering of praise, thanksgiving before God most high. And in this holy worship that Christ himself sanctifies and purifies and sets us apart for, this all will be a direct fulfillment of what Christ did well in advance for us when he bought, purchased, cleansed, purified his bride upon the cross once for all time. In the words of one of my favorite professors back up in Philadelphia at Westminster, Dr. Johnny Gibson, he said before, it is from Christ's riven side that God brought forth his bride. But why? Why the riven side of Christ? Why would he, the spotless, holy one, lay down his life for us filthy, vile sinners? Friends, it was all. All for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross that he despised its shame. See, his joy, his zeal, his burning passion is for the cleansing of you, his bride, whom he is now clothed in the garments of his righteousness. And so in the Gospel of John chapter 2, we see that Jesus cleansed the temple, that he also cleansed the church. But friend, do you believe in your own heart of hearts that Jesus is able and in fact, willing and even zealous to cleanse you, even you, even knowing whatever you've done in this life. See, we see this implicitly in verses 23, 24, and 25, the last part of our passage this morning. See, in his zeal for every member of God's people, God's house, Jesus stands ready and eager even now to cleanse you, to wash you with the waters of baptism and the word of truth. But please hear me correctly. This is not just an evangelistic call to come to Christ and be justified by faith before God, though the invitation is certainly open to each and every one of you this very morning. Friends, this is a deeper call, a call to discipleship, really, a call to us who are already believers to know and to enjoy the ongoing experience of sanctification as the gospel washes over you and refreshes you day by day. See, the glory of Jesus' cleansing work in us as believers is that he neither requires nor expects us to clean up our own selves, to get right with God, so to speak, before we can actually commune with him by prayer and the reading of his word. In fact, he knows that we are utterly unable to present our own selves as pure and holy and blameless before God the Father. And so confession of our complete reliance upon him is all that he requires of us. For he, 
He does not entrust himself to even, please catch this nuance, he doesn't trust himself to even our noblest desires, our desire to do what is right, to please him. And he knows full well our own failed ability to ever clean up ourselves and get our act together, as verse 24 in our passage implies for us. He knows the hearts of men. Rather, solely by faith in his name, we are made clean and justified. Friends, there is a powerful application then in this gospel truth for you and for me. See, elsewhere in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 6, we learn that our bodies are temples in which the Holy Spirit resides. The text for us in 1 Corinthians 6 says this, You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's a bold statement, isn't it? But you might be thinking even right now, even in doubtful response, yeah, but Rich, I, I don't feel clean. I have desecrated my body. I have entertained lustful thoughts in my mind. Even as a Christian, I have fallen prey to foreign loves, idols of my own heart. How could Jesus actually want me? And so to you, dear, struggling, doubt-filled Christian, and I mean this with all sincerity, Jesus knew all that you have ever done and ever will do. And yet he proved that he wanted you by willfully dying for you upon the cross. See, his cleansing of the physical temple, it pales in comparison to his ability and his willingness, his zeal even, to cleanse you and to remove from you every last one of your sins as far as the east is from the west. So as we close, I want to bring our mind's eye back to that first illustration of those two dogs in my friend's house. Because just be real, it wasn't like a story about a dog, right? <laughs> but see, in the midst of my sheer panic over the mud that these two little puppies had tracked into my friend's clean house, and especially upon those pure snow white couches, my own dog, a little chocolate lab named Baxter, he quickly picked up on my own facial expressions and my tone of voice <laughs> that I was livid over what he had done. But friends, he, his own little heart, I could tell, began to sulk. And my own heart immediately became filled with pity over this little animal. See, I couldn't help but rush over to my little puppy and just give him a giant hug. Now, I know what you're probably thinking, Rich, he's just a dog. And I get that. Like, for the record, dogs are not humans. <laughs> Our culture might think otherwise in the coming several years or so. He's just a dog. I get it. But he's my dog. He's my own possession. And I love that little dog. See, my love for this little dog, Baxter, compelled me to comfort him in the midst of his pouting and his sulking, in the midst of his dirtiness even, and even to give him a giant hug in the midst of his muddy mess that he had made, and then proceed to take him to the bath and wash him. 
Friends, do you believe that Jesus has a far greater love for you? Your dirtiness, your sinfulness, great as it may be, is of no surprise to him. He knows it full well. And yet, this is the gospel part, right? He is still zealous for your purification. As the gospel of grace makes deeper and deeper and deeper inroads into your life. See, Jesus is still zealous for your humble reliance upon him. Jesus is still zealous for your joy in knowing the liberty of a clean conscience before the Father of all mercies and comfort. He who is now raised from the dead, Jesus himself, will at the last raise you too with a body finally incorruptible, sinless. And so believe the word now, which he speaks over every single one who comes to him by faith. Jesus' words from the Gospels, I will, I want to be clean. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we truly have nothing good to give to you. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before you, and yet we have learned from your gospel in John 2 that yours is a love that surpasses even our understanding. The peace that you give to us that attends our soul, the grace that you pour out over us like a precious oil, cleansing our consciences and letting us know the sweet message of forgiveness yet again here in this place. So Lord, we thank you that you invite us to be still before you and to know that you are God and that you will be exalted among the nations. So Lord, we ask for this to be true of us here in this place, that we would know the cleansing power of Jesus's redemption and salvation. And may we boldly take this same message to our communities, to our families, to our friends, to our coworkers, to our neighbors, and never be ashamed of this gospel message. And so we pray this with a zeal for your house in Jesus' name.